0: E rārangatira, e koromai, e kūi mai, e, e te kitpo matai koe māmā hāre hāre atu ra, e hunga ora uh, uh, tangata e hui hui, uh, nei itenei atae, jurongi itenei, whaka tino atarā ki faʻakolonga uh, ki te kaitui tēnō ranganui, Dr Vincent O'Malley. Nomai mai, mai ki Koto koutou katoa. E te Vincent. Nau uh, mai, mai ki te tau ihu o te wakau Yeah, ki ora to all of you. And just uh, uh, that mehi was just to uh, acknowledge those who've passed on uh, to Welcome all of you here today uh, onto this beautiful waka and this lovely setting, and in particular to um, welcome Dr Vincent O'Malley, who's uh, got an extraordinary knowledge of uh, New Zealand history developed uh, in a way that I'll let him describe in a moment, and uh, has been a prolific author, author, I suspect based on that development of knowledge, but we'll hear about that in a second. So uh, welcome to you all, and I'll now take a seat and uh, we'll uh, commence. So Vincent, with that introduction, can you tell us a little bit about the man and um, where you you were born, where you were brought up, how you were educated and how this interest in history developed?
1: Uh, So I uh, grew up in Christchurch, big working-class Irish Catholic family. I was the ninth of nine kids, and um, my father worked at Addington Railway Workshops when we still built trains in this country. Um, and my mother was a cleaner, and that was, that was my first job as well, actually. She was my boss. She was my supervisor. Um, and I was a cleaner in the history department at the University of Canterbury, so my joke is always I started in history at the age of 15, which is technically true, but I wasn't a student. I was emptying the bins. But it was a good way to suss out who the decent lecturers were, the ones who treated their, their cleaners with decency and kindness, so I found some good people that way. And then a few years later, I went back there, this time as a student, um, and at school, I was, I was really passionate about history. But my history teacher, like he refused to teach us any New Zealand history. He said it was boring. Because I asked him about this one day. He said, forget about it, boring. Nothing happened here. So we learnt Tudor and Stuart history and all that sort of stuff. I loved it because I loved history. You know, I just loved the, everything about it. So I went to university and enrolled in a bunch of European history courses because that was all that I knew. And then after about two weeks, um, I decided to drop out of economics. Um, and I was looking for a filler course, and I read in the Canter student magazine, it said New Zealand History 101, good filler course, and I thought it would be boring, nothing happened here after all, but I need some kind of course, so I did that, and I was blown away, and I thought, why didn't I learn about this at school? The idea that it was boring, it's like, that's nonsense, that's bullshit. We've got an incredible history, and this kind of colonial cringe about it. So that was me. As soon as I got my first exposure to New Zealand history, I was away, and I've been sort of passionate about it ever since. And I was fortunate to go to university just at a time in the late 80s when, A, I could afford to go to university because it was still basically free, but, B, I didn't need to really think about... I didn't need to go there with a, a kind of vocational plan. So I didn't have this career plan, I'm going to be a his, historian. I didn't probably even know when I was a kid that such things existed or you could you could do that for a job. But So I studied history and then sometime later... Um, I got offered a, a three-month contract in Wellington researching treaty claims, and that was nineteen ninety-three, and still there, twenty-six years later, still doing the same <laughs> thing, basically. So, yeah, that's me. Right, and the doctorate? The doc. Well, the doctorate came later. Um, I did that at Vic, two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and I'd already been practising as a historian for about a decade then. So, I, everybody's supposed to talk about the PhD being the sort of, you know agonised journey over a decade kind of thing. For me, I already knew how to do, knew how to research, so that was just getting the qualifications, really, that I thought would be professional, and, um, the, and useful for me as, in a professional way. And the subject matter of your thesis? Uh, a thesis, I did it on 19th century uh, Māori committees, which sounds incredibly boring, but actually it's a very interesting topic um, because it's, it was about how Māori appropriated Pākehā bodies, uh, committee, and reappropriated them in Māori ways for their own ends at a time when Māori had to find ways of dealing with the pressures of colonisation. Right. And te reo, Any exposure to that um, in your education? I've, I've done bits and pieces over the years. But, you know, had I, again, had I kind of known that I was going to become a historian, that would have been the first thing I did. And, um, you know, so I really, you know, I think it's it's something that we should um, aim for as. To have as a compulsory part of the curriculum. It's not going to happen overnight, but it might be like a 15 year plan for that. Well, you may be interested to know that uh, I attended the Auckland
0: Grammar School uh, uh, 150th anniversary uh, last month, and uh, one of the senior boys showing me around the school said that that school, which now has about 2,500 pupils, uh, uh, as of this year, the principal has made a, re- a requirement that Tarao is compulsory. Uh, so it's it's happening, yep. uh, slowly. Mm. Uh, just before we go any further, those of you who might have come along thinking that this was uh, Vincent O'Malley, a uh, uh, well-recognised expert on the uh, New Zealand wars, uh, this talk today is about peace, not about war. And uh, if you're here for war, that's tomorrow's session. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so we're going to ta- be talking today about our heritage. And so... One of the other aspects of uh, great significance, I hope, uh, although I don't know the detail of it, I'm about to ask him, uh, is that Vincent is part of a uh, group who've been successful in getting a Marsden fund, uh, funding for a project, and uh, I wonder if you could explain that to us, uh, Vincent.
1: Yeah, so um, the Marsden project, it's called uh, He Hitonga Te Wariwari, uh Remembering and Forgetting Difficult Histories in Aotearoa New Zealand, and it's... Um, it's a project about how we remember and forget difficult aspects of our past. In this case, the New Zealand Wars. So I'm sorry, it is it, it is it is war. <laughs> I like um, and um, historians aren't kind of used to collaborating, but in this case, there's six of us on the team. So there's me, and there's four wahine Māori. Joanna Kidman, she's the other co-principal investigator on the project, uh, and three um, other. Uh, people with her at Victoria University, and then Tom Roy from Waikato University, uh, uh, um, an incredible uh, tribal historian, he's also involved in it. And what we're doing is, well, there's two components to it, one is looking at the historical side of this, so how I have memories of the New Zealand War's kind of changed over time, well, that's my part, That a lot of that is looking at archives, but I'm interpreting archives quite broadly, So. Things like the TV series The Governor, which a lot of you will have watched as part of my archive. Um, things from, from from popular culture, you know, kind of responses to the work that James Belich has done, um, and, and monuments and memorials as well. They're kind of primary sources for me. I go and scrutinise them and interrogate them for what they tell us about that history. So that's kind of my part of it. Um, and Joanna and her team are kind of um, looking at how young Māori engage with that history today and how those stories are passed down within Māori community. So a lot of that will be based on um, what social scientists, I think, called things like walk-along interviews, where young people take you to sites of significance to them. Usually, they choose those sites themselves. And they tell you about the landscape and what it means to them. And um, like Joanna's done some incredible stuff on this in the past. She did a, a project called Through Our Eyes, where she gave young Māori kids' um, cameras and ask them just to go and photograph anything of interest to you, and the results were phenomenal. So she's got a real background in working with young Māori in that way, so um, hopefully the two parts will meld together. We've already started doing some stuff like um, visiting New Zealand War sites, like last week we were at um, Te Porere um, in the National Park. and. Um, the first thing a social scientist does is they pull out the dictaphone and they start talking about the site, what they can see, what they can smell, the the, 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 the sounds in the air and so on. Like um, at Araka, what you hear is, is trucks racing past the site. At Te Porere it was birdsong, it was beautiful. Um, but like, so she's kind of really capturing everything about what it feels like to be at that site, which is really interesting because as a historian, i just go and i I'd look at the monuments and I'd take some photos and then I'd, I'd go away kind of thing but social scientists, you know, they want the whole experience so I think, yeah, it's a, it's a three year project we're just at the start of it but hopefully it would be a, a really good one we want it to be something that is not just the usual kind of, here's a bunch of scholars coming into your community, please give us what we want and now we're going to leave with, with the communities that we're, we're engaging with, what we've said to them is we want to give back to you so Tell us what it is you want. Do you want us to help write curriculum resources for your kura about New Zealand wars in this area? If so, we'll do that. Or whatever you know. We want it to be a uh, a process that, that benefits everybody and also encourages this conversation <coughs> we need to have um, as a nation about our history and why it matters, why we should care about it.
0: And will that expand and include musket wars sites, uh, musket wars era sites?
1: Um, I don't think, uh, well, it's, it's not part of the brief of our project, but people may raise that right. and, you know, for example, in the Waikato there are a number of sites like Matakitaki and, and mm. others that are kind of uh, acknowledged and an important part of the landscape and an important part of the history.
0: Mm. Yeah, one of the intriguing things that I'm sure you'll discover as you go around the sites and have probably seen it already, and uh, certainly I saw and going around the Wars sites 20 odd years ago and going back and visiting them now is the degraded state of uh, a number of those sites, and uh, have you got any thoughts about how that can be addressed?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, you're right, it's how we mark our our past sites is we put rides through the middle of them, and that's no accident. To me, that's kind of like deliberate cultural erasure, like not just, we don't just want to forget the history, we want to obliterate the physical remnants of it, as if it ne- was never there in the first place, and... To be fair, we're, we're appalling about um, protecting our heritage across the board, but specifically so with these sites, they seem to have offended Pākehā sensibilities, at least historically. And people who have been to places like Gettysburg say, you know, they're incredible. Like, we've got our, our Gettysburg and places like Waikato and so on with Arako, and there the road runs through the middle of the park. So I was talking to um, an educator last week who says that she no, no longer takes um, students here because it's too dangerous. If you, if you just, you know, take one step out onto the road, you'd be killed by a logging truck whizzing past at 100 kilometres an hour. So, you know, we, we need to do way better than that because these sites are our, our links to that history and they're part of our story. So, you know, look after the sites. It's not, it's not going to bankrupt the nation, but what it would do is say, um, we're taking ownership of this history, we're going to look after these sites or the remnants of those sites because they're part of our story, they're part of us.
0: In terms of the uh, vesting of those sites, uh, is that something that you looked into or are going to look into? Uh, You know, should they be vested in DOC, Ministry of Culture and Heritage, Iwi, Hapu? uh, And uh, in addition to that um, observation, how do you cope with the inter-Hapu rivalry over who should have uh, the Kaitiaki
1: status for a particular site? Yeah, well, that's... um, one of the issues at the moment is the sites are managed by all, all sorts of different bodies, like <laughs> Doc manage some um, Carefish New Zealand, which was a historic place, trust manage others, in some cases, local councils and so on. They've all got different standards. they all do things differently. Um, the, the government has, is in the process of like Odaco that, that purchased back some land there, and there will be some kind of trust set up and there will be something better developed there. But there are a couple of a couple of debates around that. One is what is it appropriate to put on that site? Because it's an urupa. There are still 30 or 40 Māori buried there. Um, so you probably don't want a glitzy, glamorous, sort of commercialised kind of thing at, at a site which is still... It's a Wahitapu, It's a sacred place. So maybe, you know, if there are kind of debates around what's appropriate to have there. It may be more appropriate to have the the information centre up the road in Kihiki, three or four kilometres away, and at the site you might have something simpler. So there are those conversations that are taking place at the moment about that. But there are also those issues about who, um, which iwi are the ones to deal with there. And that's not just a question of mana Fena, although there you've got three different iwi who all kind of have overlapping interests in that area. But there's a broader question as well because um, Māori from iwi across the North Island, fought there, to tu hui and so on. Should they should they have a say about the management of that site? Should they, they be part of that trust? So there are those issues as well. It's not just a question of who has customary rights in the area, but who's part of that story and who who should um, be involved in that process. So it's not a simple one. I'm I'm really pleased that something is happening there because that's that's the site of immense significance. But there are lots of others where. Um, things aren't happening, like at Ragi uh an incredible place where you know, some awful things happen. There's, there's no Māori, Māori land left in that settlement at all. There's nothing, there's no, um, there aren't really any monuments there. There's no, uh, there's one that, that, that um, Tainui put up on the 150th anniversary in 2014, but it's just on the corner of, of a row kind of thing. And you know there are opportunities to do lots of stuff there. The um Waipa Council um they've got some good good plans because they are um building this new museum called Tiara Wai and the New Zealand Wars will be a big part of that. And so they will tell that story. But you know, that's the story as it relates to the area. How do you get the bigger the bigger story um as part of that as well? So I think there are lots of things you need to do with that in, in terms of developing resources. Have you travelled yourself in, for example,
0: the central US and, uh, and followed the, the trail, for example, that I've enforced on my children of uh, seeing buried my heart, uh, wounded knee, following that trail of broken treaties across the states and seeing those sites and just the way that the, uh, they do that so well with uh, explanatory statements, signs, signage coming up, you know, point of historical... Mm-hmm. Interest coming up in three miles, then coming up in one mile, then a, a layby to park. Uh, historical signage, etc. Have, have you had the opportunity of seeing that yourself?
1: Uh, not yet, but we're we're hoping to visit um, some of the sites on the Trail of Tears next year as part of our Marsden project, just right. to do that kind comparative thing. And um,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I raised it is listening to what you've been saying and talking about the various entities and the disorganisation that we have really in New Zealand and the lack of. National direction hmm. is. Do you know whether there's any uh, particular government department that has a budget bid process for site protection and site restoration in New Zealand at the present time?
1: Um, well, again, it would be kind of fractured because DOC would have a budget to manage the sites that are um, managed by them, and Heritage New Zealand have a budget perpetually less than they need to do anything. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it's across a range of agencies. Somebody talked to me recently, they suggested, um, one of the things they do in the US is they have um, a battlefields trust or trust multiple trusts, I'm not sure, and they kind of um, act as a kind of a advocacy group, um, but also often they, they raise funds to purchase back lands to vest in the trust. Right. And I think here, I was talking to somebody recently about this who was sort of saying that, and I said, well, actually, I mean, if you if here you were going to suggest that, that the land is vested in a trust rather than returned to EWE, there, there would be issues around that. But, you know, like, you could vest, vest the land in EWE with a covenant that it's used as a site to remember the, the history there or whatever, you know, so you've got that. So there are lots of opportunities to do things like that. And, you know, you mentioned science. Well, that's that's been my bugbear for years because so many of these sites, they don't even have sign, signposts. It's like I was, I was up in um, Hawke's Bay earlier in the year and we were looking um, for Omananui. It was a big conflict in uh, October 1866. We found Omananui right, OK, and we looked up at the signpost and it said um, rubbish tip, mini golf course, B&B. Nothing about historic site. It's like, what is that about? Wow, how much does a signpost cost, 300 bucks or something? It's... Um, so, you know, just you know, I'm supposed to be an expert on these sites, but so many of them, I struggle to find them. They're really incredibly hard to find. We, again, it's kind of like we don't want to know about them. We go out of our way to bury these places.
0: Just can I turn back to a different subject, and that's uh, your Waitangi uh, Tribunal uh, inquiry involvement. And uh, uh, can you just outline that sort of uh, recovery of our past knowledge that has been developed by yourself and countless other historians and and what that's led to in terms of a resource? uh
1: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the most interesting historical research in New Zealand and the most important research that's been done over the last two or three decades is in the claims process. Um, And, you know, for... If you're a historian researching a claim, what you do is you, you write a, a lengthy report. It might be 500 pages. Um, I think my biggest one is 900 pages. And every single primary source that you use, you've got a copy, and you put it in a document bank, and your document bank might be 20,000 pages. And often that stuff sitting up the archives that nobody's looked at for 150 years since somebody wrote it, and there are incredible discoveries made all the time. The only issue with that is the only people who get to hear about that are a bunch of treaty lawyers, the claimants, and members of the Waitangi Tribunal, such as yourself. Other New Zealanders don't hear about that. Um, and they often, so when you get treaty settlements, the, you know sometimes there's a backlash because people aren't aware of the history behind the claim. They're not aware of the fact that the typical treaty settlement returns one to 2% of the unimproved value of what was lost. So every iwi who signs up treaty settlement is signing away 98% of, of everything they lost. Um, but they don't know the history either, and so it's th- th- there's great stuff being done in the claims process, but people don't get to hear about it. Which is why I um, decided, at least the stuff that I'm doing, I need to kind of um, reach out to a wider audience. So uh, whether it's through books or blogs or you know online, whatever, because you know this history is incredibly important, and more people need to know about it. It's it is part of our story.
0: I may be wrong, but just uh, looking at yourself in terms of uh, using Dr. Google, uh, our source of all knowledge, uh, it appears to me you've spent about 20 odd years probably gaining the knowledge, and then the last 10 years producing a phenomenal number of books. Is that a reasonable sort of description of what you've been doing?
1: Um, yeah, well, I've I, my first book was, I think, 1998, and then I did another one, 2008. Uh, in between I did my PhD and various other things. I mean, I think since 2008, I've I've, I've probably published, I don't know, five or six books. So I've been reasonably busy. More than that, I think. Oh, (laughs) could be. (laughs) It's quite an extraordinary effort that you've
0: done over that last 10 years. But essentially, and again, I may be reading that wrongly, but uh, essentially you've had the ability to recast for different uh, titles and subject matter that you've been... Uh, it would appear to me that you've been recasting that in terms of the broad knowledge that that 20 years of research gave you. Is that approximately right or not?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at my my big book, um, in a sort of both literal and metaphorical sense, Great War for New Zealand, that was... Um, so that's the history of the Waikato War, and that started with... Um, research I did for the Waitangi Tribunal for its King Country or Pota Inquiry, but 2006 I was commissioned by the tribunal to do that. And at the time, um, even even staff members at the tribunal were like, oh, this story's already been told before, Jamie Bellis did it, you just need to summarise his stuff and, and that's it, it'll be really straightforward. And once I got into the research, I, I was like, I worked out things like, um, I found a, a census of the Waikato population in 1858, and I compared that with the casualties in the Waikato War, and I thought, Christ, it's higher than World War I. I, I didn't know that, and I was staggered by that. And it's like, wow, that's unbelievable. And um, so once I, once I kind of figured out stuff like that, I thought, people need to know about this history. This is staggering history. And um, so, you know, for that, um, for that claim, I wrote a 900-page report um, and a 600-page report. One was on the background to the Waikato War, one was what happened and the consequences, confiscation and so on. And then I spent years trying to get funding to turn that into a book because I, I knew that this, a lot of my previous books had been based on going into the office on Saturday or working at nights so or whatever else, I can't do that, this is way too big. I need funding for a year or two or something to, to, to research. this. So I, I spent years sort of trying to get funding. Eventually I got a one-year scholarship at the Stout Research Centre at Victoria University, and that was what I needed, that was great. I mean, it probably took me like two to three years to do it, but right. getting that, funding it for a, a year anyway, it was really good. And, um, and you know, so that is based on kind of all of this, re- uh, you know, a, a repackaged version of all of this research that I did for that claims process with some new stuff, because the tribunal is kind of a, is only an incident part of the story. I mean, one of the things I, I looked at in the book was this, again, this thing about how the war had been remembered and forgotten over time, which is not, not really relevant in terms of the claims process, but fascinated me. And um, what I discovered originally when I looked at this, I thought my assumption was Pākehā have always forgotten this history. And then I looked at what happened, and like 1914, the 50th anniversary of Araco, there's a huge crowd there um, for, the, for the commemoration for the event. I think 5,000 people special trains from Auckland, um, there's public holiday and so on. The really interesting thing, most of the people there are Pākehā, and they call it a celebration. They're there to celebrate Arako, and it's like, wow, what's that about, celebrating Arako? And the reason they celebrated it, because they had this idea that um, through this um, mutual respect forged in battle, Māori and Pākehā, settled down to have the best race relations in the world. So this, the, the, this kind of foundational myth for Pākehā, it had its origins at Arako, and so that's why 1914 they celebrated it. And no wonder there were hardly any Māori there because they're not going to celebrate uh, a battle where their ancestors were killed, their lands were taken, generations are condemned to lies of polity. So there's, there's a complete disjunction in, in how Māori and Pākehā remember this history. And even in the 1960s, you still get that. They're still they still calling it a celebration. And I think what happens is, um, you know, by the 1970s, you can't get away with that anymore. You can't celebrate that history. And so this is this period, I think, when you got when you get what I'd call an uncomfortable silence that kind of emerges. pakeha don't know how to talk about these wars. We don't have the we don't have an acceptable narrative around it. And that's why when things like the governor crops up in 1977, there's sort of a backlash against that because Governor Gray is not portrayed in a particularly flattering light in that series, and, and Muldoon has a crack at the makers and said this is politically correct nonsense and all that kind of stuff. Again you get that with Balich's, um stuff like Baloch writes his, his wonderful book in 1986, and scholars read that and say this is tour de force, wonderful great scholarship, but that, that's, you know, that's a relatively small group of people who read that. Ten years later it's made into a five-part TV series. And a lot of people, I was like, how dare he say that? Somebody said in, in Baloch's series, um, all of the Māori are brave and noble and clever and the Pākehā are stupid and, and, and wicked and cruel and greedy and so on. And, and there's kind of this real backlash. You know, That wasn't what he was saying, but there's a real, um, how dare you say this, this, this about our history? These were uncomfortable truths that people didn't want to hear about. And I think that's only started to shift Really, in the last three or four years, I'd say that Pākehā were starting to learn new ways to engage with this history, and to me, that's not about uh, making anybody feel guilty or ashamed about the actions of their ancestors. I saw a good um, a good quote recently that somebody said Jamie Vowch, when he was lecturing on this, talked about the the difference between blame and responsibility. Um, you're not to blame for the actions of your ancestors, but you are responsible for what we do about that history today. And I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. Sorry, that goes a bit beyond your question. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I, I was just intrigued, too,
0: from your point of view, as a um, historian who's produced a number of reports for the Tribunal, uh, and although you were saying that it, it, um, it's, they don't become widely read, my perception uh, as a barrister doing those one of those cases for three and a half years in Totoehu in the top of the south here was that um, a real uh, there, there was not that detailed sense of knowledge that you're talking about but a real grasp of the nature of the breaches of the treaty that had been disclosed by the research that was done and a real sense of grievance and a real upset at what were obvious gross breaches of treaty. And so you saw a real sense of aggression uh, in terms of the way those uh, grievances were expressed, uh, which, um, in retrospect, I think, was part of a reconciliation process. Do you see it as uh, that Waitangi Tribunal process as being a diffusing, uh, you know, an awareness sense of agreements and diffusion or or do you not think it goes that far? Uh,
1: yeah, there's always been this kind of debate about what, what's the purpose of the, the tribunal process. On the one hand, there's this kind of truth and reconciliation aspect to it, the cathartic thing. On the other hand, there are some people who say it's about returning resources to Māori. It's a much more practical thing about recapitalising those communities. And I think it's a bit of both. I mean, if you look at um, the... What Maori have done with the settlements, like Tainui and Naitahu, turn 170 million dollars into, but both have assets of well over a billion dollars today. So, I mean, one of the things I talk about in my stuff about the New Zealand wars is that's kind of a return to the 1840s and 1850s when Maori were the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy, and you know, incredible commercial flair before that was all taken away, and, and now even with a fraction of what they had then. Look at look at how successful they've been. It's been a huge boost for our economy. It benefits everybody, and um, so th- there's that practical part. But I do think the um, the kind of the cathartic, the truth-telling part is really important as well. And for some Ewe, when they go into treaty settlements, because that's the other thing I do as well, as I as I work with Ewe and negotiate settlements and, and you know extract apologies from the Crown, uh, which is like getting blood from a stone sometimes. Um, and for some, they're way more important than that. For them, what they want is they want that apology. They want the Minister of Treaty Negotiations to come to the MRI and apologise to them, and that's way more important than the money. So there's kind of a range of viewpoints around that, but I think both are a really important part of it. Mm. And and for those who
0: have settled, uh, again, it's just one person's uh, view, but uh, you do tend to get the feeling that that sense of grievance um, suddenly shifts once the settlement is achieved and there's a
1: refocusing of the iwi leadership on the future.
0: Uh, Do do you share that view or not?
1: Yeah, I think so. But, I I mean, I think um, there's a refocusing on the future, but I don't think there's a, you know, I don't think there's a forgetting of the history as well. That's still part of the story. Like, for Tainui, their history is still incredibly important. And... um, You know, like they're sort of developing resources of their own, so that young people can learn that history as well. But Mm -hmm. it's learned in a different kind of way, and maybe some of the the bitterness that was there before—it's not. You know, of course, it doesn't disappear overnight. It's hard. It's hard for that to happen when you think about what happened at somewhere like Gwangyaafia. But then you see, kind of remarkable, Māori leaders like Tom Rowe, who's part (coughs) of the Māson (coughs) team. He's very senior Tainui Kaimatua, and he's descended from uh, people, you know, people who were attacked the at Rangiawhia, and he talks about that history with a, 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 a sort of quiet humility, which is really remarkable. You know, you'd kind of expect him to be really angry about that, but he's not. He he talks in a kind of way that is... is It's all about reconciliation and healing, and having that dialogue about the history is really remarkable to see. Mm, yeah.
0: In terms of <coughs> those iwi who have settled, we've got funds, and if we, we're in the South Island at the moment, if we look, look at Naito, um, a couple of sites that I'd certainly be keen for you to have a look at if you hadn't had the opportunity already is, uh, and they're not New Zealand war sites, obviously, but uh, they're sites, is Kaikoura and uh, Kaipoi, and uh, one of the disappointments to me is that I I've spent decades of telling my friends to make sure that they keep their eyes open for Priestess Road as on a big sweeping right-hand bend yeah. as they're getting close to Christchurch, and uh, look to their left, and they'll see a monument, and that's the site of Kaiapoi, and uh, and you go there, it's one of the few places where the entrenchments that um, and and the moor uh, that were uh, thrown up uh, for the palisading is still very very obvious. Uh, you, can see, mm. you can't see where the saps were that were dug in by Tadopara, et etc., as the power was taken. But it's fallen into a very degraded state over the last 20-odd years. Mm. Kaikoura, got a captive tourist audience, often bad weather, they can't get out and see the whales, etc., immediately opposite, a magnificent power site uh, which is now occupied uh, and uh, um, has a marae and a beautiful whare nui, Background, snow covered mountains, etc., and it's a site where very dramatically Thirupra comes in and, uh, and there's a, um, a sacking of the path. You can still see, if you know where to go, uh, by going into the hospital grounds or around the back of the Marae and, and at, the, at the front by going up a very weed covered, scruffy little path that's hard to find and yeah. you've got to literally crawl to get up there. Um, you can s- see the approaches to the par, and you can see the, the entrance way into it. Yeah. Um, which, again, if you know the history and know the archaeology, you, uh, you can roughly work it all out, but it's very difficult. Uh, how, how do we manage to encourage those iwi with the funds and the capital to recognise that and, and, and develop it in a way that people can appreciate? Their well, own people, let uh, alone others.
1: I, I, I don't think the only should be just on iwi. I think the Crown needs to come to the party as well. And... Um, one of the things that you could do is develop apps, heritage trails for those sites, so that, so that you could find them and then you could learn something about them.
0: Nati Hini have done that at Ruapekapeka, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and the, there's one for the Waikato War. Um, last time I used it, it didn't seem to work terribly well because You're it had limited functionality. <laughs> so, when um, <laughs> w- When you had no data connection, right. it was kind of like, and, and mostly sites in the middle of nowhere. So you, a lot of the time you have no data. Yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, in theory, like, um, you know, those sorts of resources, apps and um, people are talking about you could do kind of virtual reality thing where you have the headset on and, and there's kind of recreation of, of stuff as well. Um, obviously, you know, websites, but also like documentaries, like the stories of a Picker picker 1 that me Forbes did. That was, you know, that's wonderful. And there's another one, in the pipeline for Taranaki this year because that's where the National Day of Commemoration is in October. Right. So I think, like, I mean, the thing about this is, you know, one of the things I talk about is teach the stuff to kids, but also adults. We need to learn this history as well because we didn't learn about it at school. So do it, you can do it in lots of ways that are really engaging for people. Not everybody has to read my 700-page book on the Waikato War. You can watch a 30-minute a documentary or, you know, something. There are, there are lots of ways of telling the, this history. Right. One of the um,
0: locations that you're, you're talking about, at Taranaki, uh, that Turuturumokai uh, is a magnificent site where there's a magnificent old uh, traditional Māori pass site, but, as you know, just above it, the uh, redoubt that was attacked by Tito at the start of his campaign in 1868. Um, And, again, into hapū, scrapping over who's the kātiaki, unfortunately, but uh, uh, last night I was urging you to um, have a look at Tāwhiti Museum at Hawara when you go to look at that site. Um, That's just uh, one individual who uh, has bought an old dairy factory and created a whole series of dioramas relating to Taranaki history. Uh, But those... um, those dioramas or in relation to particular localities, again, difficult to get funding from uh, local authorities. It just keeps, to me, bringing back that we, we need some national direction. And uh, I'm delighted to hear about your Marsden Fund project because is that something that you're going to be trying to direct attention of the government to, to um, provide some
1: proper funding for this? Uh, well, yeah, I hope, it, I hope it attracts some attention for, you know... The first thing is if we agree that there's something here that's important to remember, then the next, step, the next thing is what do we do about it? There are lots of practical things. Protect the sites, teach the history, make resources available. That, that, that's my three-step action plan. Simple as that, OK. <laughs> <laughs> just, just provide funding and there, there it is. It, you know, it's, it's not that difficult. It just requires willingness. We just need to say, yeah, this is part of our history we're taking ownership of it, We've, you know, we're mature enough as a nation now to say that we need, we need to engage with this history. And then the rest, it's just a matter of detail. Yeah. Um,
0: I wanted you to just, if you could, explain to us the uh, background to a, the uh, Ra uh, Maumahara, the Remembrance Day concept. And uh, I, I think it may have had its genesis in the... Uh, petition by the Otorahonga uh, girls who presented a petition seeking the to be uh, compulsory, uh, I think compulsory, but in New Zealand history to be compulsory definitely and, uh, and also a sort of commemoration day and I think you were involved in that process, weren't you?
1: Um, yeah, so 2014, group of students from Otorahonga College, small, quite poor, rural, secondary school, Uh, They went on a site visit to Arako, Rangiawia. These are about 20 minutes from their school. Um, But they were learning about the American Civil War at the time. (laughs) Um, Which is ironic because that took place at the same time as the Waikato War that they lived in the middle of and and which they knew nothing about. So they went back to school and they, same as me, it's like, why aren't we learning about this stuff? And they thought, what can we do about it? And so they they decided to organise a petition. Leah Bell, she was just 14 at the time. But young people today are incredible. So they organised this petition. They got thirteen thousand signatures. I, I signed it. That was the extent of my involvement. Yeah. Um, but and also said a well, I, for it. I I signed it too. They rang me and I signed. It <laughs> <as well>. <laughs> <laughs> but I
0: also put a submission into the select committee who never dared to respond. Uh, but I understand
1: that they got you along, didn't they? No, 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 no. no. Um, what what if, um what I did with Joanna Kidman is we did kind of an analysis of the submissions. Oh, right. And there were 189 of them, and about three-quarters were opposed to it. Um, and including one from the Ministry of Education who said, no, we can't teach the New Zealand wars at school. It's too difficult. Forget about it. Uh, and most of the other... So three-quarters of, of the submissions were against it. Anecdotally, most of them were from older white men and, who kind of had this what we called in our paper, uh, I think, a politics of nostalgia for a time when, an imagined time in the 1950s when Pakeha men were in charge and women and Māori knew their place kind of thing and they wanted to, you know, it's the sort of um, Hobson's first kind of outlook on our history. So there was that kind of, um, so that, you know, um, there was that response. But So the government, I think August 2016, they. they agreed that there'd be a National Day of Commemoration and a Maumahara, but not a public holiday. So um, Leah and Marama Anderson and others are still pushing for the public holiday and still pushing for the history to be taught to all school students, which, you know, I'm, I'm pushing for as well. Um, so there are lots of unfulfilled aspects of that. I think with the day itself, I think probably in time it will become a public holiday. I think the more important thing for me is how that day is marked. And I'd hope over time it became a bit like Anzac Day, a time for reflection on that history, a time when resources and information were made available for people, and maybe people go and visit sites in, the, in their area that, that are connected with that history as well. Because there's a real complexity, it seems to me, to that uh,
0: uh, Roma in that uh, where, where do you... Uh, or how do you go about responsibly and accurately recognising the reality of the um, kupapa involvement uh, and also, how do you recognize those sites, Turanganui, for example, or Mohaka, where where um, bad things occurred from Māori, equally as bad things occurred from Haka, places like Oraka, etc.? Uh, so, how do you deal with that?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I think, I mean, we need to kind of. Um, Raise awareness about the role of Māori who fought on the Crown side in the wars, and understand that they weren't fighting for the Crown; they were fighting for their own hapu or their iwi. They had their own objectives in the wars, uh, which, you know, often were completely different from the Crown's um, take on things. And for a lot of them, it was about survival. You know, for Te Arawa, for example, uh, they didn't go to war; the war came to them. And 1864 that they get a toa, a war party from the East Coast that says we want to cross your land to go to the Waikato to, to assist the King Tana, and so on. So if they said yes to that, they're implicated in the so-called rebellion. So their lands could be taken, they could be attacked and so on. What do they do? They say, no, this is our rohe, you can't, you can't cross it. And so they become almost loyalist by, by default as a result of that decision and, and the conflicts that later take place. And they kind of suffer terribly for that as well. Later on, you know, by the late 1860s they're, they're talking about being short of food, their settlements have been attacked by tukoti and so on, and um, all, of the, all of this assistance that the Crown promises them is not forthcoming. So they're kind of massively betrayed by that. After the war in the 1870s the are considered, you know, deeply problematic loyalists uh, because they, uh, like the King Kingtown and so on, they're trying to protect their autonomy and as loyalists, the Crown expects them to sell land to the Crown and they're like, no, hang on, we, we're holding on to our lands. The Crown only gets his hands on their lands in, um, I think, 1881 by duplicitous means they enter this agreement called the Fenton Agreement where they say, uh, the Crown says, well, OK, well, you, you won't sell your lands. What about we lease them on your behalf, we collect the rent, return it to you and you'll get, you'll get the profit from this township in your area. Rotorua. So this happens. The Crown fails to collect the rent. Te Arua are impoverished. And then the Crown says, well, now that you, you really need the money, what about we purchase now? Which is the height of cynicism. You know, this is a trustee acting in direct breach of their fiduciary duty to Māori and exploiting this terrible circumstance which it has created itself. So, um, you know, the, 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 but even, even after that, Te arua still have this kind of faith in the Crown in the relationship that they forged um, through the 1860s and on. So it's, you know, there aren't... It's not a case of, of, of supposed loyalists are kind of winners out of the, all of this because, you know, a lot clearly are not at all, and that's the story. Yeah. The um, story. <coughs> I listened to an
0: interview that you had on the national radio recently, and... Uh, you mentioned there a phrase that I've never heard before, of dark tourism. Uh, what were you meaning by that?
1: Dark uh, that, that tourism would be um, people who visit sites associated with pain or tragedy. Um, so the, 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 the current dark tourism hotspot around the globe is Chernobyl after that um, incredible series it was on recently. Everybody wants to go to Chernobyl. Personally, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> right. I think it's probably still fairly radioactive. But mm. um, so you know, sites like Araki and so on. You know, when you visit them, technically that is dark tourism, and that's why I talked about there are these debates around what's appropriate to, to have at those sites, and is it appropriate to commercialise those sites? you know, like put up a museum and charge 20 bucks to get in or, or, or whatever is involved in that. I think um, the bottom line on that for me is that Ewe should be making those decisions about what they want at those places. And if, if there is an commercial element to it, then they should be the ones who benefit from that. Um, I, I know at Rangirere, which is a site that was, has been, recently been restored in quite an impressive way, Ironically, only because the NZTA wanted to put a new Waikato expressway through their land. So they said, here's a few million to restore what's left of Rangiriri Pa site. And they've done a really good job about that. But now um, Ngati Nahu, the local um, hapu there, they, they bring school parties through that site and they, talk, they explain the history from their perspective. And uh, that's really great. Uh, they, um, so that, that's a, an arrangement I think could work for everybody. Mm. But difficult, as you say,
0: at Oraco, uh, because Tuhoi had more more numbers, really, than Manapoto. You know, it's quite a difficult thing as to who gets the the funding, who has the kaitiaki rights, isn't it? In that situation.
1: Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that I think that will be resolved. I, I don't see it's it's not it's not something that that is um, beyond resolution. And all of those groups have, like, if if you go to um, Rewi Maniopoto's Urupa um, in Kihikihi on the turn off to Arauco, you'll see there, um, there are a series of po around his grave, and one of them is uh, Tefinoa Nui, who was a Tuhui rangatera who came and fought at Arauco. So Tuhui are kind of acknowledged as part of that story, and, and, and other iwi as well. It's kind of everybody, nobody is sort of suggesting that they shouldn't be included in those conversations. It's just when you get down to the level of if you're setting up a trust. For, to manage that property, who should be represented on that trust, and how should those decisions be made, and so on. Right. Yeah. Just very much aware of time. Uh, I was told that I was to
0: run. We were to run for forty-five minutes, and then allow fifteen minutes for questions. So uh, the floor is open to anybody to ask
1: I I didn't do I haven't done a lot of oral history research for my stuff. It's mostly archival driven, and I um, one of the things I wanted to avoid doing is appropriating Māori oral histories for my purpose. I I think it's it's for Ngāti Apakura to tell the story of Rangiafi from their perspective, not for me. Although the interesting thing is that um, people there have told me that. Uh, my version kind of validates the oral histories, but it comes at it from a different... Uh, you know, we kind of arrive at the same point, from, from, from different starting points. So I was, I was kind of conscious because, for example, there was a lot of stuff done for the the King Country Waitang Tribunal Inquiry. There was a, a series of uh, traditional history hui and hearings, and I had all those transcripts. I could have easily thrown in such-and-such such a kui talks about this at Rangiafia and so on. I didn't. I mean, obviously that kind of informs my understanding of what took place, but I'm not directly using that because that material had been gathered for another purpose. And um, so, you know, that, that kind of informs where I come from, but it's not directly in there. And I think um, likewise with Pākehā. Where, where I did use some of that material is when um, James Cowan had interviewed a lot of the surviving Māori and Pākehā veterans of the conflicts. And a lot of that is in his book, New Zealand Wars, which is still really valuable for that reason, that he, he recorded those perspectives from veterans. But if you go back to his papers, you get the original um, interview transcripts, whereas in the book he kind of tidies stuff up a bit and you know tweaks it. So the, the, the transcripts of his interviews with those, those surviving veterans of the conflicts are really useful sources of information as well.
0: Michael King said that um, in his uh, writing of Māori history and issues, he sometimes came across a certain amount of resistance within Māori because he was a Pākehā historian. Mm. Have you had any experience of that?
1: Um, oh, very occasionally in the treaty claims process. Um, and I think, I mean, I understand that because if you're kind of an outsider coming into a community, you have to earn trust. You can't expect it as a right. And, you know, in some areas where you, where you go to work with we in Northland, it's like two worlds up there. You've got very impoverished Māori communities alongside very wealthy Pākehā ones. Um, and and so you come in and, and there are kind of assumptions around outsiders and so on. So you do need to build that trust. But I think, I mean, one of the things about um, talking about New Zealand wars and so on is I think um, as a Pākehā, I can probably say some things that that uh, a Māori historian might get more pushback against. So I, I think, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm sort of I've got that sort of privilege that I can I can say things that um, people don't assume that I have a vested interest in it or I'm biased or anything like that. Um, and you know, I've also um, you know, in talking about that history, I've tried to. Ref- reflect what happened to the Pākehā in those conflicts as well as Māori. So trying to sort of capture both sides. Do you think there's any progress in Northland with the
0: settlements?
1: Uh, well, one of the issues in Northland um, is the Crown's insistence on one settlement. And it's 120,000 people there, 20% of the Māori population. And they, for the purposes of the, the claims process, they'd already organised themselves into five collectives. Um and any of which would be way bigger than many other iwi. So if the Crown was more flexible around this and said you don't all have to join one settlement, um, then there might be more progress. I'm not quite sure why the Crown is so adamantly opposed to that. It's kind of hard to follow. Vincent and I were talking about that last night because the...
0: if you know anything about the Northern Wars, uh, you, you just recognise that Hokianga and Napier in the southern uh, area, uh, Bay of Islands area, just uh, they fought against each other in the New Zealand Wars. So trying to get them to, uh, you know, accept a, a joint settlement is is not very practical. Mm. No, and at the same time uh, uh, that. Uh, the Minister of and who, who did a brilliant job because it was treaty settlements generally. At the same time that he was uh, ta- adopting the stance that Ngāpui must settle as one, he was settling with Ngāti Kainunu down on the uh, east coast of the North Island with, with six settlements. Very difficult. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, the dreadful state of the Māori population in prison and Māori health in, in those... You might call the the lower socioeconomic part of the Maori community. Uh, the the Treaty settlements in your work and other historians' work is that is, is that filtering down to that level? Is your work going to create that bottom group that is obviously still terribly affected by our history?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. One of one of the great things that um, uh, my publisher Bridget Williams did with my Waikato War book is. Um, Send a copy to every prison library in the country. So, um, and they also have a program, um, Books in Schools program, where um, a trust that, that, that does that as well. And I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's really valuable. And I think with, with things like the, the prison stats and so on, I'm not a social scientist, but I'm pretty sure you could find some connections between the history and the contemporary picture as well. No, they're, they're, well, they're quite hard to access and find, and they're not necessarily uh, written in a user-friendly format, um, because um, some years ago, the, the tribunal moved to kind of an issues-based framework, so there's not a, they're not necessarily strong on narrative. If you pick up the Central North Island report, it's four volumes, and... You probably won't have a really great understanding of the, about the relationship between Tiottawa and the Crown. like an overview, you have lots of detail. But for the big bigger picture, I think what would need to happen is somebody to extract material from those reports. Like the tribunal years ago used to have funding for um, school kits, and so they would take tribunal reports, and they would repackage it purposely for young people, so they, they could there was one for um, Arake, I think. Fatima claim, so they they, they kinda of repackage that so young people can engage with that history. And I think I'm sure if the tribunal had resources they they could do that kind of thing again today. So I think the I mean there are there are ways you could do that. The usual thing that happens when a tribunal report comes out is there'll be a press release and, and you'll be able to read it on scoop somewhere and there might be one or two media reports and that's it. That's the extent of the public information campaign, and I, I think we need to do more than that to ensure that people know what that history is, why it's important. You know, for example, last year, um, I talked about the, the Rohe Pote, the King Country claim. Last year, that, that um, tribunal released its report. Um, I, I'm not sure I saw hardly any media about it, but they referred to what happened in Iraq and Rangiawea as massacres. I was like, wow, this is going to attract a lot of media attention, but nobody seemed to pick it up at all. And um, <laughs> you know, as a historian I'd be reluctant to use use that term myself because it's so loaded and it's so controversial. But the fact that the the tribunal went there I thought was extraordinary. And there would be opportunities to kind of repackage that history as well in a way that, that, that people can learn from and engage with.
0: not a comparable professional historian on the Maori side producing that information. Did you ever encounter situations
1: like that? Well, in the the, um, claims process, one of the things sometimes um, university-based scholars sort of talk about it being presentist and, and, you know, all that kind of thing, but when when you give evidence to the tribunal, Um, there'll be 20 or 30 lawyers there for different iwi and they'll all have their own perspectives on on that history. They'll want to cross-examine you. Um, There's the Crown there. They'll have their own historian with them, advising them, critiquing them. They will have read and reviewed your report. So they'll feed in questions. Then there's a tribunal. There are always historian members on the tribunal if it's an historical inquiry. So um, I'm not saying that... It's not possible for mistakes to be made, but there's intense scrutiny of the historical evidence um, from from all sides, really. Can I just give you a light-hearted uh, <laughs> <laughs> an account uh,
0: that um, I was for Natty in the Tōtara Inquiry here, and in uh, in conjunction with a number of other, we we were having scraps with Nato through the whole of the process, and. Uh, Ngai Tahu had funding, and they had a bunch of three or four very able historians, and uh, and one of them was um, uh, Dr. Toa Tamari To Dr. Tamari very able, highly, uh, highly intelligent, but coming from a Ngai perspective, on my perception, and so you know, I had to cross-examine him at the end, and. Uh, and you sit down, and it's after you've like anything, that if you're making a public speech, or as Vincent will be feeling now, you're never quite sure how it's gone. And uh, so I sat down and wondered how on earth it had really gone. And uh, the judge uh, turned to the, uh, one of the members of the tribunal, John Clark, who was a, a Ngātiparo man from uh, a principal of a high school up in uh, the north and he said, I think we'll start the tribunal questioning with you, Mr Clark. And John Clark uh, waited for absolute silence. Now this cross-examination of the Naitohu historians had been, we'd all been waiting for three and a half years for it to happen, and it was a highly tense, highly charged atmosphere. Um, uh, the whare nui was at Ōmaka, and it was absolutely jam-packed. So when John Clark was asked to start the uh, questioning, he just stayed absolutely silent until he got absolute silence. And then he looked at Tamari toe and he said to him, I listened to that evidence with great care and interest, and he said it reminded me of a rugby match that was played at uh, Tararoa between uh, Ruatoria and Araroa. And we were all thinking, what on earth this <laughs> has this got to do with the top of the South Island and, and the Takigawa line and uh, Naito? And... Uh, and he said um, it took about ten minutes for the first uh, for the referee to blow his whistle for the first scrum that occurred. And he said the Ruatoria halfback ran away. Game's been played at Taroa. Ruatoria halfback ran away, grabbed the ball, came back, held it up, and said to the ref, "Hey, ref, whose ball is it?" And the ref said, "It's our ball." And uh, the place just erupted. And uh, Uh, John Clark said, oh, I suppose it was more an observation than a question. And and we moved on. Uh, So I don't think then, for the reasons that uh, Vincent said to you, my perception is that the Waitangi Tribunal process is claims-driven, claimant-driven largely. um, Because of the Crown Forest Rental Trust, there was funding for, for the district inquiries. It's a bit of a lack now, but in those days there was. And and some very very you know a whole crop of very good historians like Vincent uh, came through that system and they produced very good material, and but inevitably there would be situations where you had to make the historian had to make decisions in terms of the perception that they took on particular factual events.